And welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our beloved radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour, and the Green Majority is a platform for informed environmental dissent where we boldly ask the question, are we going to stop destroying ourselves? A conspiracy theory-fueled fascist movement is continuing to grow in the United States as MAGA supporters, including Proud Boys, some of whom were wearing black shirts with red armbands, stormed the U.S. Capitol on the 6th of January to prevent Joe Biden from being formally ratified as the winner of the U.S. presidential election. Convicted felon Michael Flynn, who was pardoned by Trump, said at a Trump rally on the 5th that with Donald Trump remaining in office, quote, it may not be the Republican Party, it may not be the Democratic Party, it will be the People's Party. And convicted felon George Papadopoulos, also pardoned by Trump, quoted Ulysses S. Grant at the same rally on the 5th, saying, quote, there are but two parties right now, traitors and patriots. There are at least 111 Republicans currently in office in in Washington, D.C., who are refusing to accept that Donald Trump lost the election by 7 million votes. There were even Trump supporters rallying in their trucks here in Toronto. And in the midst of all this blundering fascism, please allow me to point out that we are doing this environment show, The Green Majority, every week, because it still looks like obscene numbers of people will die, and the structures of our society will collapse chaotically if we don't collectively decrease fossil fuel production by 6% every year for the next 10 years, and pretty much every country is currently going in the opposite direction, meaning doom. It's an amorphous doom because there are so many unknowns, but the potentials are so disastrous that it seems insane that almost every major government is increasing fossil fuel investment to recover from COVID-19, and many of us are wishing to return to the exact same economy that has been dragging us into an inferno. Averaging out all the world's countries' projected uh, production of coal, oil, and gas, what we're collectively planning for appears to be suicide. We're planning to produce more fossil fuels, not just than what we need to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, let alone 2, but even more than the slight increase implied by our climate pledges. So even if every country follows through on their climate pledges as they stand, we will still be running headlong into global catastrophe. And it isn't just that we're burning too much fossil fuel. We have already burned too much fossil fuel, and the earth is already melting and burning, and it's going to keep getting worse even if we stop burning everything right now, and still we are planning to produce more and to burn more. In addition to our wanton coaxing of this hell, we've also destroyed an unimaginable amount of habitat and wildlife, which is a loss difficult to feel or comprehend when most of us live in massive cities and can't conceive of what it would have been like to have hordes of non-human beings around us all the time. And so arises the question of whose fault is it and what are we to do? To blame human nature, whatever that means, is defeatist and boring, since it implies that there's nothing we can do now and nothing we could have ever done. It also leads our gaze away from the corporations that have lied to us for profit for over 50 years. 
There's um, some poetic truth to the idea that we have as a society simply cut ourselves off from nature and natural cycles, and that if each person individually underwent a radical change in their thinking, we'd be saved. But how could such a thing ever happen in such a short period of time? It seems true that we can blame our woes simply on greed, but it doesn't seem imminently practical to muse about greed if our task is to immediately and drastically decrease fossil fuel use and rehabilitate the ecosystems we've destroyed. Adding to this vortex of grave unknowns, it has been calculated that even if we manage to collectively, globally, cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030 and reach zero by 2050, this will only give us a 50 to 66% chance of keeping global heating under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Some say that we can overshoot 1.5 and then dip back below if we suck carbon out of the air, but we simply don't have that technology yet. So as things get stranger every month, we need to stay focused and oriented, but we also need a dexterous, nimble, and flexible form of mind that can deal with ambiguity without breaking down and can change in the face of new truths. Mary Anais Hegler wrote for Wired in April of 2020, quote, Especially now, at this critical stage, we have to accept that we're all going to have to buckle down for the long haul. Responding to this crisis is going to have to become a part of who we are, all the time. Once you understand that, you understand that this isn't about climate action at all. It's about climate commitment. Climate action is recycling or going vegan. Climate commitment is bigger. It's a framework. It's asking yourself, what can I do next? And always next. Eric Holthouse wrote on the first of this year, some advice for participating in the necessary revolution, saying you should let others help you and teach you. You should discover what you alone have to offer and cultivate that unique gift. And you should live in accordance with your values as best you can. And that's it. I don't uh, know what else to say about this matter, so I'm going to pass it over to Stefan and Lauren. This is recorded on Wednesday, which means it was only about an hour or so ago that the Capitol building was declared all clear, meaning that they had finally pushed the fascists out of the building after hanging out. You know, I, I, I honestly don't actually have much, you know, other words for it. You know, yet there was a there was someone who's breaking in who was shot. And yet seemingly after that moment, Nothing happened. I believe so far as this moment, 15 arrests have been made compared to the 14,000 that occurred during the George Floyd protests. Yeah. And and footage of footage of them being pushed out, we finally seen um, was people being led at a very leisurely pace between like quite literally velvet ropes to, to funnel them out of the building. Yeah. And so. We're recording this in the midst of what is yet another seemingly unbelievable moment, you know, trying to make sense of it as best we can. And I woke up this morning thinking of what was possible you know, with the victories of Raphael, uh, of, of Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm left honestly shaken 
uh, by today's events in a way that I can't exactly yet place. You know, maybe in a future episode I'll be able to do a better job articulating my feelings, but right now I mostly just felt shaken. And it's not because I think they'll succeed. You know, Joe Biden will be president. But to watch protesters take selfies with the police inside the Capitol building that they are literally storming leaves me sick to my stomach. It's like watching the shadow of what is to come. You know, this time it may not prove dangerous, but the fascists that cast that darkness will return, and I'm left deeply questioning if we can trust those in power to stop them before they do. You know, and if I and uh, you know, if you're thinking, isn't this an environment show? Yes. But there's no chance of action in a fascistic state. So we must resist these movements at every turn. I know, like, there was a bit Dave had at the end about the what we should be doing. And so, Lauren, I'm going to throw to you about that piece because I'm still sort of stewing in this over here right now. Yeah, yeah. It almost seems trite now um, in light of everything that's happened today. Uh, but trying to form coherent thought and analysis after watching everything go down on social media and on the news today has been difficult. So I'm instead going to reference notes that I have written in past days because that's easier at this point. Because um, for listeners, although we're not a scripted show, we do obviously compile notes as we read these stories and prep. Um, so yeah, the Eric Holthouse piece um, on the Phoenix, which is a a really awesome newsletter that he independently publishes. Um, I think, I don't think it's every day. I think it might be every week. Either way, it's a great newsletter. People should check it out if they're, if they like Eric Holdhouse's writing or they're, they're interested in just sort of getting an, an, uh, an independent, but very educated perspective on, on climate news and climate policy. Um, and in the Phoenix, he, he, yeah, he put out this piece on, um, on sort of how to become a climate revolutionary. And he has three tips that, that David mentioned. And the first was let others help you. The second one is we each have a special skill, offer it. And the third was live in accordance with your values as best you can. And um, and tip number two is sort of one that stuck out to me and I, and I honed in on a bit um, because I think too often, <laughs> again, this sounds so silly after what we've seen today, too often um, people sort of think they aren't an activist or an organizer um, and, and and that they don't necessarily have the skills necessary. But um, what Eric mentions here, and, and I think it's always really worthwhile to emphasize, is that all skill sets are necessary and welcome when it comes to um, organizing and, and engaging in activism uh, for the sake of sort of climate action. Um, it doesn't matter if you don't give a great speech or you don't want to stand at the front of a room and direct a group. Um, if you're a good cook or you love and you're really good at building strong friendships and relationships, or if you're a good artist, or maybe you're really good at research or taking notes or keeping a Google Drive organized. Those are all um, skill sets that are necessary and needed in nearly all organizing circles that I personally have ever been a part of. It's all about sort of offering what you have and being open and willing to learn more. Um, so I did really love that if, 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 you're, if you're feeling a sense of despair uh, looking at the state of the world, um, the the best remedy, the best medicine for that I have always found is to engage in your community and take meaningful action, however that look like whatever that looks like for you. Um, and it's uh, 
choice that anybody can make, I think, because like I said, no matter, no matter what your walk of life or your background or your education or your skill set, um, you need to be present and we need you with us. Um, and sort of tangentially off of that, something that I saw, I think tweeted out, it might not have been today. It couldn't have possibly been today. It must've been yesterday, but with somebody saying that like organizers really have to be willing to teach. And for the longest time, um, I think sort of out of defense, people threw out this idea that like, it's not my job to educate you. Um, and when it comes to organizers and activists, like, yeah, it is. Um, and unless of course you're from a, an extremely marginalized community and you've been harmed, obviously it's not your job then, but for like the average person, the average organizer, yeah, it is your job to teach because the only way we can possibly win, especially in the face of, I don't know, the kind of insurrection that we've seen from the right and fascists today. Um, the only way we can win is by bringing more people into the fro. And that can't happen if we exclude because somebody doesn't know everything about a given movement or a given topic or, or have the skill set that we, that we have decided that we think that they need. Um, we need to be forgiving, we need to be welcoming, and we need to help each other to learn and grow and, and acknowledge that sometimes people will say the wrong thing and, or do the wrong thing. And, and within reason, we need to learn how to hold each other accountable and, and work through conflict together so we don't lose each other, because if we lose each other, we lose the fight. And, and again, just going back to the idea that a lot of these thoughts were written prior to what happened on Wednesday. So when I say we have to be forgiving and we have to help each other be accountable and move through conflict together. I'm not referring to helping, helping us transform fascists into anti-fascists. That's, that's not the audience here. What I'm saying is, is if, <laughs> I don't know, I can't even give a proper example right now, but if you're in a movement space and you mess up and you say the wrong thing, um, as long as your heart is in the right place, trust that you're still meant to be in that space. And that if you're surrounded by good organizers and good activists and good people, that we can help each other learn and grow and, and work together. Yeah. Yeah. Something I was thinking about actually also yesterday is along those lines is that, you know, the zero carbon world has almost every job that everyone has right now. You know, like, unless you are quite literally the person who is drilling the oil, you know, and even still, those are transferable skills. You know, look at Iron Earth. Those are transferable skills. So, like, like no, like, a zero-carbon world has all of us in it still. And so your skill set is still there. You're a part of this, too, and we will need you at that moment. And so that to me is, a, is, is, I think, a key thing to know is like, you know, we're not cutting everyone like, yes, maybe an industry would die, but a skill set lives on in thousands of ways. And and all of these things are transferable. Like there are probably like four jobs that I think shouldn't exist entirely. You know, like I, if you are coming up with a new way to build a gun, then then you can leave. Uh, but like there's not a lot of these things here. Yeah, especially because, frankly, Maybe if you're the one designing the gun, I'm not stoked about it. But if you're the one who's just been operating the machinery to to build the mechanics, then no, we need we always need people to operate machinery. Yeah, there's other things to do. Exactly. All right. So assuming the U.S. government is still intact by the time this airs, we're going to look at some positive things happening in American politics. 
The U.S. House of Representatives, for instance, has exempted COVID relief and climate legislation from what Paul Krugman has called a crude and mechanical budget deficit rule, whereby new spending had to be matched by equal cuts. The move means that green reforms can be more easily enacted. Both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock have won in Georgia, giving the Democrats a Senate majority come January 20th and giving Joe Biden a much better chance of saving the world. Ossoff, who is Jewish, had his nose elongated in a picture by his opponent during the campaign, and Warnock, who is black, had his skin darkened in a picture by his opponent during the campaign. Both Republican incumbents also engaged in extremely questionable stock trading after being briefed about the pandemic early last year. And finally, we saw a strange beast going by the name of bipartisan U.S. climate policy last month when senators agreed as part of the stimulus bill to phase down HFCs, which is part of the Kigali Amendment of two years ago, in which countries across the world agreed to do the same, thanks in part to the work of John Kerry. The bill also included $35 billion for clean tech and energy efficiency, $4 billion for clean energy, $1.7 billion for retrofits for poor people, $2.6 billion for sustainable transportation, and $500 million for research on industrial emissions reduction, as well as $2.9 billion towards making clean energy cheaper and easier to get. Yeah, so... What's amazing to me a little bit is this is what I thought we would be talking about today. And there's so much good news here. Like, like I fundamentally, it is mind boggling to me that there's the level of amount of good news in this small subset that Dave mentioned. Like the first thing, Paygo, which is the name for the Literally, the Democrats enforce this on themselves whenever they control Congress, which basically requiring themselves to not, you know, to, and to make sure that everything is pay, paid for, which this Republicans do not do when they offer massive tax cuts to rich people. They don't have to do this. It's Democrats decide to do this. And one of the first things that uh, AOC actually did was vote against this two years ago. And the fact that they've carved out not just uh, climate change uh, policy, but also, I believe, Medicare policy and stimulus policy means that they've at least, you know, unshackled themselves and allowing themselves to do a fair amount of, of, of real policy here under these auspices without this completely unnecessary, onerous expectation that the Republicans do not require of themselves. So what? Great news. Two, HFCs. Or a huge climate problem, and the fact that they actually managed to squeeze this into this other bill is great. Like, the Kigali Accord turns out to be very important. We've had a conversation on the show previously about the deep irony of the fact that when you go through environment classes when uh, in university, the big victory they talk about is moving from CFCs to HFCs because that stopped uh, the, ho- the hole in the ozone layer, only to later find out that HFCs are terrible greenhouse gases. But this is still an unmitigated, you know, this is this is a huge win. This is matters deeply for climate because HFCs were very bad. Then, which is Dave actually didn't mention, but also was actually squeezed into the other bill, 
uh, th- which, you know, I'm not pro a $740 billion defense bill, but within that bill did include the fact the United States banned shell companies from being anonymous, which is huge when it comes to actually tackling the way that the United States was being used as a tax haven, and wealth inequality matters deeply. And so the fact that they got that through is also great news. And the fourth great news is that everyone who lost yesterday is terrible. Kelly Loeffler, very bad human. Mitch McConnell, very bad human. David Perdue, also terrible. Like, yesterday was a great success for people who are bad having bad days. And the fact that today happened to sort of overshadow that is a deep disappointment because I think all of us deserve to bask in the fact that Mitch McConnell lost his job for longer than a couple hours that we got, you know? And props, as an aside, to both Stacey Abrams, who, you know, has been getting huge kudos across uh, across uh, across the world for basically, you know, flipping Georgia, but also to Kelly Loeffler's WNBA team, who, when Warnock was... so. For those of you who don't know, Kelly Loeffler owns a WNBA team. The players who played for her team hated her because she's a very bad person. She is, you know, she literally campaigned with with the KKK or members of the KKK. Uh, she quite clearly used insider trading, learning about COVID, and then selling off stocks to make a bunch of money. And her own players, when Warnock was pulling at 9%, started wearing shirts saying, Vote Warnock, which is one of the most baller moves anyone has ever done against their owner. That's incredible. And huge, like, all of this was good. All of these things were good. And I have a much longer thought process about, like, how the fact that just barely squeaking the Senate should not, you know, should not mean that we decrease our ambition but i just wanted to highlight the fact that like so much good news actually occurred and that we it it now will be a footnote because of everything that happened today and that is that is a shame that was really lovely and coherent and made so much sense meanwhile my broken brain from today just spent the last five minutes googling are hydrochlorofluorocarbons different from hydrofluorocarbons because i can't remember so (laughs) i'm not a great contributor to the green majority today unfortunately um i did spend a little bit of time reading over the um the the stimulus bill. And yes, you're right. There's a lot of great stuff there, which is really exciting to see. Um, In a lot of ways, honestly, I feel like what we're seeing with this bill, it doesn't mirror, but is is somewhat similar to what we saw come out of um, our own federal government a few weeks ago. And as much that the comments I'm seeing on it are uh, one of them specifically from Chuck Schumer, which is interesting because he is from the government himself. So it's, it's always interesting when you get democratic critique of of democratic uh, legislation. But he said, let's be clear, are these provisions enough to meet the demands of the science? No. But are they a significant step in the right direction? Yes. And that's basically seems to be summarizing um, a lot of what we're seeing about the stimulus bill, at least at least from a climate standpoint, that's not really commenting on 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 the other measures. But from a climate standpoint, 
no, this isn't going to be the silver bullet that saves us, but it is a positive step in the right direction. And it's certainly a positive step in the right direction after the last four years of inaction. So kind of like what we've said a couple other times when we've commented on sort of the prospect of Joe Biden and what he stands to offer um, as a leader of the United States should 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 he get to swear in uh, in two weeks time is that um, he he does seem to be making steps in the right direction. Progress um, won't necessarily be at the pace we need it to be theoretically to completely divert um, all of the sort of the 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 disasters that climate change has to offer us. But um, it seems to be positive progress nonetheless, which is good to see and good to focus on, um, is that is that there are good things happening here. The other one, actually, maybe, I don't know if it's underrated, but but sort of minor, huge deal by the fact that the, the Democrats will end up controlling the Senate, is that the Senate majority leader has a ton of control as to what even makes the floor. And so there was the fact, basically now everyone who Biden has mentioned will now actually get confirmed. You can feel quite confident about that, you know, which means we will see, you know, the first uh, indigenous woman becoming the secretary of the interior. You know, we will see all the climate champions that we heard actually become, you know, the, the, the different heads of the things that they've mentioned. Like you will actually be able to see a government that will be able to govern at least for the next two years because of the fact that Mitch McConnell can't stop them now. And like for all of my deep, deep, deep distrust and dislike of Joe Manchin, uh, the Democrat for West Virginia, who is now basically going to be the person that everyone tries to convince to do anything on climate, uh, which as an aside, there's a very interesting argument to be made that a Green New Deal type big stimulus is actually much more likely to get him on side than a very tight, small price on carbon move. But anyways... There are a whole bunch of these of, of much more simple pieces that we actually get an opportunity to that I'm very like that. That is big news. Like the fact that they can actually have a functioning government, which I know is a depressingly low bar to set. But 2021 is all about depressingly low bars. So here we are. We are now moving on to degrowth and the Green New Deal. So in a paper for the journal Ecological Economics, Ricardo Mastini, Yorgos Kallas, and Jason Hickel argue in favor of a Green New Deal without growth and look for parallels and discrepancies between the Green New Deal's most recent articulation by young American progressives and a degrowth approach to the climate crisis. Both degrowth and the Green New Deal involve major intervention into the market that is literally driving us to death. The authors point out that Green New Deal advocates might argue that investment in a green economy will increase GDP, which will in turn create more money to be invested in clean energy and so forth, thereby hastening the green transition. Degrowth advocates argue, however, that financing a green economy through GDP growth increases energy demand, which is self-defeating, 
and that developing more clean energy does not in itself decrease fossil fuel demand, uh, and and that green growth itself can be very destructive to the environment because many green solutions require a whole lot of minerals. The authors state that the Green New Deal as it currently stands, with its labor reforms and job guarantee, can be traced to an idea from Mazzucato and McPherson that, quote, the private sector cannot innovate without the public sector giving it purpose and direction, and implies a radical redistribution of economic and political power. Degrowth, on the other hand, is not a political platform as such, and is based on the simple idea of putting fewer resources into the system while focusing on mutual well-being. The authors point out that the only way to stabilize the climate while growing GDP at a normal rate relies heavily on technology that doesn't yet exist, and rich countries are going to exceed their carbon budgets before they're able to completely decouple GDP from carbon emissions. Degrowthers maintain, meanwhile, that quality of life can improve even while GDP goes down. What's more, climate solutions like fossil fuel divestment and reduced consumption have been vilified precisely because they would hurt economic growth. Embracing degrowth, therefore, makes it easier to imagine a wider range of climate action. Degrowthers also emphasize a general shift away from attachment to private property and towards communal living. In addition, if the government is willing to socialize relevant sectors, targeted green growth can still happen even in a shrinking economy. To avoid destabilizing things while shrinking the economy with hard environmental caps, degrowthers advocate for work-sharing as well as maximum and minimum incomes. I think actually we should come back to this in a show, and, and Dave mentioned that we probably will, because the distinction between where a lot of people are in regards to modern monetary policy, which is basically that we can you know really heavily invest in these changes and and you know use the power of governments to sort of push uh, these changes by basically them spending a ton of money and accepting that because we can borrow at basically zero percent interest rates right now is is a very different argument than great degrowth and both of them i think have merit the one i think probably both sides can probably agree on is that gdp is a terrible metric about what we're doing yeah it is a, a it's entire concept which we've definitely covered at least at some point on the show you know it's about how much money is flowing through the system which means that if there is a oil spill that costs money to clean up that's a bonus for GDP. That increases GDP, which we have decided is good. And there are already significantly more interesting metrics out there. You know, there's a happiness index that has a whole bunch of other things. There are other ways we can understand value. And the, our attachment to GDP is, I think, regardless of how you actually see our, our, our success and our movement towards uh, a, you know, a zero carbon future, no matter which, no matter what way you decide, I think GDP itself needs to be done away with as the main metric as how a society is doing, regardless. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, reading about this, I don't know. Reading about degrowth is always really interesting because it's definitely, it's a concept that like I really latched on to um, as, a, as a younger environmentalist. And that's not to say I've, I've abandoned it or I think it's terribly flawed, but um, I, I think degrowth principles are really, really hard 
for people to wrap their brains around here in the West because we're so caught up in the typical sort of like capitalist dichotomy narrative of abundance and austerity. So we hear words like degrowth and then we think about or and like and we talk about a shift from sort of like private property to communal living, like like David mentioned. And and what we hear instead is like Soviet scarcity um, when we hear something like communal living. So like the degrowth argument is a really hard one to make when growth as a positive runs so deep within the Western paradigm, um, because growth is equated with progression and with security and with abundance and to grow is to multiply. And we live in a system literally shaped by Christian ideals where the very first chapter of the Bible literally instructs us to like go forth and multiply. So to shift focus from growth feels like stagnation. It feels like death. And, and frankly, when the West is so culturally divided right now along lines of narrative and media consumption, I, I honestly don't know how we can have a sort of collective conversation necessary in order to intentionally shift a paradigm like this, this way. Um, and like I said at the outset, that's that's not saying that in the environmental movement, we need to abandon principles or the intention of degrowth at all. I'm just saying that, um, especially with a piece like this, um, I'm sort of, uh, I don't want to say tired because it's not that I don't want to have the conversation anymore, but part of me is getting a little bit fatigued of older environmentalists being really critical of the sort of like young person's Green New Deal because it isn't like quote unquote deep green enough when to be honest, like deep green ecology has really nasty roots in like a grossly white neo-pastoralism anyway. And I don't actually know that it's something I want to cling on to. Again, not to say the degrowth isn't valid and that the principles aren't something we should hold because I do think we should because we know that growth has to slow um, if, if we're going to continue to make the planet livable for the next several centuries. If if we continue to grow unabated, it doesn't matter whether we're burning carbon or something else, we'll end up in this same nasty resource cycle. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am joined uh, once again with friend of the show, Emma McIntosh from the National Observer. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back in a new year that will maybe not be as bad. Yeah, that's that is my that is my bar. I agree. <laughs> not as bad is the is the exclusive bar of 2021. You'd think it would be a low bar, but it, it does seem iffy at this point. But because it's the new year, uh, we like to do a little bit of this sort of looking forward. And, you know, one of the values we try to provide on the show is is talking to people who have their ear to the ground. So this part of the show is a very quick check-in on Ontario climate news and what we're looking forward to or, or paying attention to specifically. Looking forward implies positive, which, as you'll see soon, not the case. So what to watch in Ontario climate news. we got five different things for you right now. Uh, Emma, what's number one? All right, number one, kicking it off with perhaps the freshest, conservation authorities. Right before the winter holidays, the Doug Ford government passed all these amendments to the way that conservation authorities in Ontario work. And the general consensus is that those amendments make them weaker and kind of undermine their ability to stop development in floodplains or um, to make sure that, that development happens safely. So in the new year, we're going to see how those things play out. And, you know, it, it could be coming up pretty soon. There's one case in uh, Pickering where the municipality wants to build 
this like film studio warehouse thing on top of a provincially protected wetland. The Toronto Region Conservation Authority did not want this. And using the new laws or the new law that the government passed last month, they could very easily override the Conservation Authority's concerns and get that development going anyways. So that, that's one example. There will probably be more, but we shall see. Yeah, we covered that sort of story about half of them quitting. And and, and really, the, the, the big question I have, which I think is hinted at by your saying that, is really like, if you're going to invest this much capital, right, this was a deeply unpopular move on the federal government's part, you have to presume they're going to use, the, use this changes, right? It, it makes no sense to make all these changes and then not do things that would no longer be illegal or, or would now be freshly legal. That's a very common sense way of framing it. Yeah. <laughs> There's no point doing something if you're not planning to use that to do something else. Yeah. And so, and so I guess, yeah, so that what we'll learn is how far they're willing to go. And I think the second point you want us to pay attention to uh, ties into this quite directly. So, so what is the second thing that you are paying attention to? Oh, yeah. So the second thing on the list is the very mechanism that the Ford government is using to try to get that, that whole film studio warehouse thing going on top of a wetland. And that is the wonderful ministerial zoning order. So if you haven't heard of it, it's this, this weird niche mechanism uh, that the government has where basically the Minister of Municipal Affairs, who is Steve Clark right now, can override the local land planning process, override pretty much everything, and make sure that there is a final decision for how a parcel of land will be used. And uh, not only that, but make it so that it cannot be appealed. So how this plays out in real life is exactly what I was talking about earlier. Municipality wants a warehouse. They ask the government for a ministerial zoning order. The government says, absolutely, and <laughs> there it goes. Previous governments had this mechanism at their disposal. They used it a whole lot less and more often for like emergency situations because it's kind of viewed as undemocratic. And, and as you mentioned, uh, about half of Doug Ford's Greenbelt Council resigned recently, and a lot of them cited the use of zoning orders. So that's going to be one to watch, whether the government ramps it up or whether they respond to growing backlash there and decide to back down. Yeah, and this actually also affects, for those who you know, want to pay attention more to urban politics, it can be used in sort of the opposite way too. I believe a couple MZOs, MZOs have been used to sort of override uh, jurisdictional in, in inside municipalities. I know in Toronto, there are a couple of times, I believe, there have been things that the city of council may, have, may not have approved or did not like that the province, because in Ontario or in Canada, for those of you who don't know, municipalities have almost no actual authority. It is almost, almost all of the authority exists within provinces and they can sort of do whatever they like. Uh, see the amalgamation of Toronto as an example, or the cutting of Toronto's councillors in half during an election. We have almost no way to stop these types of things, and that extends to these MZOs. I believe there was one, uh, there was a development in Toronto recently where you know the city council was going through the normal process. Ontario comes in and is like, actually, no, this happens now. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. There were three uh, three MZOs in Toronto's West Donlands, um, where the city actually did not want them at all and had zero notice. But um, 
Like even though the government has said they'll only do it if the municipality is on board, uh, apparently that doesn't like apply to provincially owned lands where they can do what they want. So um, very interesting times. I think it raises a lot of questions about like balancing the need for urgency with the need for um, careful consideration. Like in a lot of these cases, um, I think there's almost 40 MZOs now that have been issued by the Ford government. A lot of them are for long-term care homes. Absolutely, we need long-term care homes. But is there still like a discussion to be had about whether this is the way to do it or whether this place is the best place to put it? That's that's where I get interested. For sure. So part three, uh, this time a thing that they are uh, offering to do rather than thing they've already done. Ontario's climate plan. Take it away. Yeah. So Environment Minister Jeff Urich has mentioned a few times that the government is working on a rewrite of the contentious climate plan. And most recently in December, after all this Greenbelt Council stuff went down, he mentioned it again. Obviously it has been a couple of weeks since before the holidays, (laughs) but whether the government actually follows through on that and, and what's included in that rewrite, I think will be very interesting, especially since I think we have learned a lot in the last couple of years, but how much the public might be concerned about climate. And um, that's something that's fluid. So yeah, I'll be interested to see whether the Ford government actually responds to public concerns or whether the update is is kind of a nothing burger. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I find that interesting because to be honest, I don't even remember their first plan. Like, I, like, I think I remember, I think my memory of their first plan was just their gutting of the old plan. And I believe there was a bunch in there about litter. If I remember correctly, there's like a whole subsection of litter, which is like, at least like, I remember being so incensed that their litter issue they thought was almost as important, took up almost as much space as the climate portion of their car, of their plan. And so do you have any sense of like, yeah, like, is, is there any idea whether or not this is going to be a significant upgrade? Are they actually going to try to put in a carbon t- a price on carbon that might be equivalent in, as a backstop to the, the fact that they might lose this upcoming challenge, which we will talk about in half a second? <laughs> like, You're stooping us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is, there, is there a thing there or do we not? Is there no indication whatsoever right now? It's kind of a bit of a blank slate. Um, one thing I've noticed with this government is they'll throw like, a couple million here or there towards like, we're going to build like new wetlands or we're going to protect endangered species. Um, and then when it comes like down to budget time, they're like, Hey, look, we put all this money into the great lakes. We put all this money into this. Um, and, but when you add it up, and I think when you talk to people who are a lot more scientifically proficient in this than me, um, they would probably tell you that um, the, that money is kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the damage that's being done with legislation. So, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a lot of small funding announcements, but you know, there we do have an electorate here that is becoming increasingly concerned about climate. Maybe they'll read the polling numbers and take something from it. You know, it is hard to say, but I am really excited to find out. Of course, like we can't rule out more price on carbon stuff either, right? Like the the feds made it very clear that they were not happy with Ontario's replacement for the carbon tax and that they expected more and that they might um, they might try to tighten the rules in the future. So I don't know if that would happen this year, but at least in the coming couple of years, we could see it could be fun. 
speaking of the federal government in Ontario not liking each other, they are currently in a court case, which I only half scooped earlier in this interview. Uh, but can you, where are we with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are expecting a decision to come down sometime this year, um, which would be great because it would just kind of end this this long misery of uh, decision, appeal, decision, appeal. Um the gist of it, you all know the story. Ontario didn't like the carbon tax. The feds did want the carbon tax, and we've just been fighting about it pretty much ever since. So we will find out when the Supreme Court rules whether or not uh, the federal carbon tax is constitutional. Can you give us a short explanation as to what that case is about? Like, what is what is Ontario actually challenging? Because my understanding is that they basically are being like, you do not have the authority to administer this tax because it, I presume, covers provincial jurisdiction areas in some fashion. Like, to, I I've, honestly have a very hard time actually understanding how Ontario could make this case because in my understanding, taxation is one of the very few things very clearly the federal government is given jurisdiction over. But is there, is there a hair I'm missing here that they're splitting? So, one of the arguments that I think is pretty central to it is um, the fact that like the provincers are saying that taxing something like this, like on such a broad scale should be a provincial decision. And the feds are arguing, well, climate crisis is a national problem. Like that's not just a provincial problem. And, and if you guys are messing up, that's going to affect all of us. So like the question is basically, is it an overreach according to the way that like our constitution is written or is it a reasonable step to address a national problem. And I think I can probably guess where you fall on that side of the <laughs> argument. But I am an unbiased <laughs> moderator now. We'll see, uh, we'll see what the justices decide. I'm intrigued. Right. And then, uh, so, th- which brings us to the, the fifth and final thing to pay attention to, which in some ways I think maybe covers actually the, the last four. Yeah, with number five, we're going to get philosophical. And the philosophical question that we're examining in 2021 is what will the Ford government do and how will they feel as the electorate changes when it comes to climate? Uh, Over the last two years, especially, we've seen this sea change in how the public thinks about climate. You know, Um, I remember climate strikes that happened or climate marches that happened in like 2016. And you compare that to the one last year Oh my God, was that two years ago now? No. It was, it was like a year and a half, September 2019. Yeah, that's like, it's been a while. Time time is a struggle for me right now. Um, but <laughs> if you compare all the previous ones to that one, you can really see the difference, right? Like there's a level of engagement that we have not seen. Voters care about it. I think the, the 2019 federal election really showed us that Canadians by and large are not really voting at least on that level, for parties that don't have a climate plan, outside of the prairies at least. And so um, the question is, what kind of internal polling are the Tories seeing? If it matches with the public polling, then they might be losing people on this. The big question I think that we'll start to see kind of coalesce into some form of answer this year is how much that translates into people being willing to vote for another party and how much the PCs might be willing to reverse course or to try to make up, not make up, but come up with something that can satisfy people. Queen's Park is going to get funky as the next election approaches. It, you know, we have Andrea Horwath and the NDP 
under her certainly have a climate plan, but their popularity hasn't been striking. The liberals are not exactly reaching flourishing levels of popularity under their new leader, Stephen Del Duca. So the PCs might very well look at that and say, you know what, we're probably going to win anyway, who cares? But we could also see that people are going to be reluctant, uh, especially in that 905 region, which very much went for the liberals in the federal election, right? So it's that same region that's going to be vital in the Ontario election. And I will be very interested to see whether those people are willing to walk away from the PCs if they don't have something concrete. Yeah. And well, and they're also the ones who are most impacted, I think, by these greenbelt decisions, right? They're the ones who are the closest to that, to that area. So that's a really good point. A lot of the anger uh, about like the ministerial zoning orders and about the conservation authorities is actually coming from very coveted PC seats in the greater Toronto area. So that could get fun. That could get wild. Woo. Well, uh, <laughs> 2021, it could get wild if the vaccine <laughs> comes in time. That's the my new my new mantra from uh, for this year. Thank Maybe we should so change much. that to it will get wild because it, it probably will. Just we don't know how. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah, if 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 we if we're all still inside by November of this year, we are. It's going to get wild for regardless of whether or not, we, <laughs> just in a significantly less fun way. Well, thank you so much, Emma. Uh, I'm sure we will have you back on many times to talk about these five issues and likely things that we have no idea are going to happen very soon. Thanks so much for always being here. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.